HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register to attend PASA's 31st annual conference by January 28th at pasafarming.org conference. You're listening to Season 2 of Fields, the podcast, with Melissa Metric, Wythe Marshall, and Allie Wist. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow food, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming in urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements, examining each in turn. Thank you so much for listening. Edda, thank you so much for joining us. Um, uh, We would love for you to just give kind of a quick introduction of yourself um, and, you know, what topics you've researched over your impressive career as a historian. So my name is Dr. Etta Fields-Black. I'm an associate professor at Carnegie Mellon University in the Department of History. And my I work on both sides of the Atlantic, so in pre-colonial West Africa, as well as in the South Carolina and Georgia Low Country during the antebellum period. And my research specialty is the transnational and transatlantic history of rice. So peasant rice farmers in pre-colonial West Africa on the Upper Guinea Coast and Blacks who were enslaved on rice plantations in the South Carolina and Georgia Low Country and the linkages between the two. Um, I started my work in West Africa uh, thinking about the development of mangrove rice farming um, among peasant rice farmers in coastal Guinea. Um, I have sort of followed the story of rice uh, to the South Carolina and Georgia Low Country and have become fascinated by a little known story, um, which is Harriet Tubman leading a raid uh, on the Cumbie River of South Carolina, uh, which is surrounded by rice plantations. And so in June in 1863, Tubman leads two 
regiments of the Second South Carolina Volunteers, their white uh, commanders, um, and her group of spies, scouts, and pilots are the ones that are piloting them up the river. Um, and they free 756 people uh, in about six hours. So it's an amazing story, and it allows me to say a lot of things that I want to say about slavery and about rice and about enslavement on rice plantations and to reconstruct the lives of the enslaved people before, during, and after the raid. Um, I also collaborate with, I collaborate with artists. And so I've been um, collaborating with three-time Emmy Award winner, John Wineglass, classical music composer. And together we're writing the first um, symphonic work about slavery. Uh, called Unburied, Unmourned, Unmarked, Requiem for Rice. And I collaborate with scientists as well. And so the group of scientists I work with have mapped all of the rice fields in South Carolina. Um, we're moving on this summer to map Georgia, and we've got the entire rice coast in our, in our, our sites. Um, and we're thinking about, we're attempting to quantify you know, the amount of cubic earth that was moved by enslaved people and how enslaved labor uh, reshaped the coastal landscape of the low country. And what can we learn about the past at this moment of um, climate change and sea level rise? And how can we figure out how to preserve the historic rice fields. So I like to sit at the intersection I'm learning of artists and scientists, and I like to um, use interdisciplinary sources uh, because the populations that I work with on both sides of the Atlantic didn't leave a lot of written sources. And then I like to set it to music. <laughs> and telling amazing stories in between <laughs> and put it on stage. Well, you have to say more about music. What, what kind of music? Tell us all well, about that. Well, you know, I, thus far it's been classical music. You know, thus far it's been classical music. And we've, we're writing the first symphonic work about slavery. And it was really a desire to... It's such a difficult history, you know, it's such a, it's such a tragic, I mean, slavery is tragic. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. And, ah, I don't know. There were just so many things that when I started working on in South Carolina, um, and I was struck by very many things on the South Carolina side of the Atlantic where rice was grown with enslaved labor for commercial purposes because I cut my teeth in West Africa where rice was grown with family labor for subsistence. And, you know, reading about the death and disease and I don't, I can't, I don't have enough words, enough synonyms for death today at this moment. <laughs> um, ah, it was just, it, it just boggled my mind, 
you know, and there's another part. See, I guess I'm, I'm out of practice talking about the Requiem because, you know, pre-pandemic, <laughs> I talked about it, I don't know how many times a week, and I don't do that. But another part of it was, you know, starting to focus on a book in South Carolina and coming face to face with my own family history, right? And my own family's enslaved, my own ancestors' enslavement on rice plantations and literally encountering it on one of the plantations that I was studying about, right? Was that a surprise to you? Like, did you know this history beforehand or did you actually find this out while you were doing your research? I found it out while I was doing my research. I mean, there were certain things I knew. I knew what part of South Carolina my dad's family was from right? I knew it. We visited every summer. Did I know it was surrounded, that it was, a you know, that that whole area was rice plantations? Not really, right? Growing up, no, I didn't know at all. People didn't, family didn't talk about slavery. That's the last thing they wanted to talk about. They didn't want to talk about the past. They didn't want to talk about Jim Crow. They didn't want to talk about a lot of things. So no, I did not know. I started traveling to South Carolina and lecturing once my first book was coming out. Um, And so with each trip, I sort of learned more, but it really wasn't until 2013 when I visited a cemetery on a rice plantation where um, my father's family is buried, where I encountered what I encountered. which was an open grave that, uh, it was an open grave with full of water with my ancestor's skull floating at the top. And it completely changed the way I looked at history. I, and it, again, this wasn't like flipping on a light switch. This was me going back to Pittsburgh and trying to figure out what am I going to do, right? And I, I'm obviously doing something, it was like a tap on the shoulder, that there was something else that I was supposed to be doing that I I wasn't doing it, or I wasn't doing it fast enough, right? That I had a story to tell, and it wasn't just to my graduate students, and it wasn't just to my colleagues, that I had a responsibility. And okay, what do I do now, right? And I'm no longer, I'm just no longer satisfied with um, teaching an academic version of slavery. You know, I can't sleep at night. I can't look at myself in the mirror. I'm driving my kids around in a hybrid SUV with organic handmade snacks that they're not eating. And I'm living this life on the back of my ancestors, right? And they're swimming in their graves down there in South Carolina. What am I going to do about it? So, you know, the Requiem was a way to take all of that pain and to take the pain of millions of people who haven't been able to mourn their ancestors and to create something beautiful about it. And my artistic collaborator, John Wineglass, this is another story, John's family is also from the South Carolina Low Country. 
John's family was also enslaved on rice plantations, his father's family, again, the father. Um, we have that connection, but he's north of Charleston. My family is south of Charleston. And we're both from the two largest rice growing areas in the, the region. So, you know, it was it's about us reckoning with our own history. Right. It's about us um, coming to terms with it and creating something beautiful that is another way to teach a broader audience about slavery. And that audience is black and white. And that's part of why we 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 use classical music. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because just the the also the the feeling that it provo- that it kind of puts forward. Um, actually, on the on the way home, I was taking the train and somebody was playing a classical piece in the um, kind of on the platform, and it was so beautiful. It like almost brought me to tears. I'm sure it was in, it was so impassioned. So um, just that sense of bringing it to music does sound or, or uh, just just amazing. And, and just this other, this feeling, this emotion, this, this story, right? Yeah. And I get the question a lot. People want to know, well, why didn't you use jazz or hip hop or spirituals? And it was really about the genre of the Requiem. It was really about making that genre speak to our enslaved ancestors and to the hundreds of thousands of people, enslaved people who lost their lives on these rice plantations. Um, It was also about the millions of people, mourning millions of people who lost their lives um, in the transatlantic slave trade, in the Middle Passage. So it was about bringing those two experiences together and using that genre, um, which has been used to lament, you know, so many other kinds of of deaths and making it speak to our enslaved ancestors. I was just going to say it's such a powerful way to reconcile something that is both a global history and also so painfully and intimately a personal history. And I think, you know, by using the language of music and performing arts, you're, um, you know, there's a way to address a cultural, emotional and personal history in a way that, you know, maybe traditional academia can't do or tries to separate from it. Um, And those histories are a part of our global, you know, the history of rice farming as we're going to face it now. Absolutely. So Etta, I wanted to ask you, um, how did you initially get into studying um, uh, with, in, in graduate school this research? So what kind of drew you to it um, initially? Um, I'm sure it's, it's all connected and, and things like that, but, but what was this first kind of like spark to research this? Yes. So this is the part, this takes me back to one of your previous questions. This was the part of my family history that was known, that my dad's family was from the South Carolina and Georgia Low Country. They spoke a language that was different, um, which at the time, not until I got to college, did I find out that it was the Gullah Geechee language. Um, I'm a grandchild of the Great Migration, so my grandparents left 
most of their all of my dad's siblings except his youngest brother were born in South Carolina he's born in South Carolina and they went from Green Pond South Carolina to Miami Florida (laughs) how's that you know there was no intermediary they went straight to the big big city Um, and so that's where I grew up and I grew up with grandparents who spoke a different language you know and I remember going to my grandparents house we would visit them on Sundays And my mother, my sister and I would sit there like we were watching a tennis match, you know, because my grandparents would speak in a different language. My dad would nod mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and then he would answer in standard English. Right. So I never I have never heard my dad speak Gullah Geechee, but he understood what his parents and his great and his grandmother, who spoke deep Gullah and his aunts and uncles, he understood everyone, but he spoke in English. So I was very curious about Gullah Geechee language and culture. Um, I took my first history course, it wasn't my first, my first college history course was actually my first class that I ever took at Emory University and it was on Southern history. Um, And I was very much an eager beaver. So I'm the kid who went to the professor's office and invited them out to lunch and visited, you know, often, maybe too often. And my history professor, who became my advisor, gave me some books on Gullah Geechee. So from that reading as a freshman, sophomore in college, I end up going to West Africa. And I was actually interested in the West African connections of Gullah Geechee from my freshman year. And Rice, from my reading, Rice was this prism, right, where historians and anthropologists were talking about, um, mainly anthropologists, uh, cultural retention and cultural survivals among the Gullah. And there's, Rice was one of many, right? And so I saw Rice as this potential uh, link between the two. So that's kind of how I got interested in rice. And it evolved from there. Um, I, I ended up in the Upper Guinea coast of West Africa because, again, at, that, at the time, and we're talking, I'm going to date myself here, the late 80s, early 90s, that's where the historical and anthropological literature was saying that this is where the Gullah Geechee came from. And this is where all of these Africanisms came from. So I was like, okay, so I guess I need to go there. And when I get there, I learn about rice and I see it as this bridge, this connection that's connecting the Gullah Geechee in the low country with people in this part of West Africa. So it wasn't at all scientific. Um, <laughs> But that's that's where it started. That's where it started. Um, and for for those who are listening who don't really know about the Gullah Geechee, um, can you 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 kind of like mapped it out a little bit? But can you explain it just a little bit more? That that really important connection of the Gullah Geechee with West Africa and the growing of rice. So the Gullah Geechee are the descendants of enslaved, of blacks who were enslaved um, 
in the low country of South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, and Florida. Most people would say that the region begins in Cape Fear, North Carolina, and in the north and goes down to about the St. John's River, which I believe is Jacksonville, um, and then 30 miles from the coast into the interior. And, you know, it's a region of, of the southeast of the U.S. where, for, for much of the region, not all, um, the disease environment was pretty deadly to whites um, throughout the antebellum period. And so, especially, particularly on rice plantations, you had um, long periods in the year from early May until mid to late November when um, white plantation owners, white plant, you know, planter families and overseers did not live on the plantations. And so the enslaved people were under the direction of enslaved drivers who operated these plantations. And so some historians and anthropologists have argued that it's the lack of white supervision, the lack of white interference that allowed enslaved people to sort of develop and maintain a Creole language and culture. To develop it, and there were many Creole languages throughout the New World, right? Um, not as many survive in quotes, and that's a word I'm gonna use very carefully, in the US, particularly in the US South. Um, whereas in parts of the Caribbean, even parts of West Africa, East Africa, you have Creole languages. Um, so the argument goes that because of this lack of white interference, um, people in the low country were able to sort of maintain, to practice, and then to maintain various linguistic and cultural forms over a period of time. That is, that is interesting. I've never, I've never heard that before. And I think that's, um, that is amazing history and information. Um, I was also wondering, um, cause, um, certain research that I've read before was also the idea of how um, in growing rice in West Africa and then also growing it in the lowlands, how um, do you think agriculturally how that could also kind of affect culture or the, the, the um, being able to save one's culture or keep that kind of culture going? I think that, I think it's a, I think it's complicated. On the one hand, there are parts of the rice cultivation and processing process, which, and I should say on the South Carolina, Georgia, low country side of things, the where most historians would agree that the antecedents and the, the foundations of it are clearly coming from West African roots. On the other hand, when you look at the composition of the enslaved population in South Carolina and Georgia, 
it's not only composed of people who are from the Upper Guinea Coast where rice was grown. So there's a complex process. Oh, there's one more thing. So from those West African roots, um, the cultivate the commercial rice cultivation and processing gets mechanized and modernized in ways in the South Carolina and Georgia Low Country, which did not happen in the um, on the West African side, in large part because it's a commercial crop, right? And it's a crop that has to be grown in um, much larger quantities. It has to be there has to be quality control in terms of what the market will bear, and um, what else? Uh, I think that's enough. So, <laughs> so you know, one to one correlations cannot be made, but it's definitely a complex process that changes over time, the roots of which most historians would agree are in West Africa. But from those roots, it goes in very different directions than it does actually in West Africa. Great, I'm learning so much. This is amazing, thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. For 30 years, PASA's conference has served as a springboard for transformative food system change. PASA's 2022 conference features more than 30 virtual and 90 in-person sessions on farming and food systems, covering topics that include building community food webs, keeping seeds to preserve cultural traditions, protecting local watersheds, as well as production methods and business skills for food producers of all levels. Keynote speakers include Soulfire Farms' Leah Penniman, author of Farming While Black, Sarah Mock, author of Farm and Other Efforts, and Jessica Gordon Nemhard, author of Collective Courage, a History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. PASA's virtual pre-conference takes place January 4th through 28th. Register anytime to attend live or get recordings. You can also join PASA in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 10th through 12th for its in-person main conference. Comprehensive COVID safety measures will be in place. Learn more and register at pasafarming.org slash conference. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash conference. To kind of go back to the roots, as it were, since we're hopefully doing the series of stories about grains, um, it'd be great to understand kind of rice agriculture. And then, I mean, obviously we're interested in sort of the social importance and, and all that, but just like even literally like who was growing rice sort of before the beginning of like transatlantic slave trade. And like, um, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of questions building on that about sort of why rice has become this focal point for different historians and anthropologists to, to sort of examine the history of colonialism and slavery. Um, but, but just even understand like some of the interesting, just like facts about how rice is grown. I mean, it's very different than like corn and wheat Mm -hmm. for in part because it's a wet crop. Right. As I understand, I mean, um, so I'm curious if, if you have like a, I'm sure you, you teach, you've written books and <laughs> teach classes on this, but you know, and the, what's sort of like the summary version of like, okay, here's the sort of situation with rice and here's why this is sort of yeah. important. So there are probably more than 50 microenvironments in which rice can be grown. And that's 
from rocky hillsides to mangrove swamps. So a segment of those microenvironments are uh, inundated and a segment of them are, a small segment of them are in, um, it's grown in brackish water. Now, of course, rice is grown all over the world, right? Um, Asia, Africa, the U.S., South America. But only in two places is rice grown in brackish water, right? And that's in West Africa and then in the South Carolina and Georgia Low Country. So some of us historians have argued, (laughs) myself in particular, that, you know, um, this is in many ways the smoking gun that connects these two um, uh, technologies. Because the only people who knew how to desalinate certain kinds of rice fields to a level where rice and other grasses would grow were Africans who were originating in a certain part of the West of West Africa, in which, you know, salt and salt processing and salt harvesting was a part of their history going back, part of their technology going back thousands of years. So um, that's part of that foundation, right? And that's part of, um, yeah, that's part of the foundation. So in all of the irrigation technology that one needs to be able to control and channel, control the amount and then channel the direction of fresh water into rice fields that are built on the edges, if you will, of tidal rivers. Um, All of that is coming from West Africa. And Judith Carney has argued that it's not just sort of picking up one set, one group of technologies and transplanting them to another, uh, transplanting them across the Atlantic. It's really about a knowledge system, the West African rice knowledge system, she calls it, and being able to adapt this crop to about 50 different microenvironments. And that if you have that knowledge system you can pretty much grow rice anywhere, right? So it's not like, oh, I know how to grow mangrove rice, but I don't know how to grow upland rice. No, it's a knowledge system that spans those 50 microenvironments. So, um, and the other knowledge system, which South Carolina planters did not have, was the processing of rice, right? How do you um, separate the kernel from the grain? And how do you do it in a way that doesn't break the grain? And how can you do it in a way, particularly for a commercial market, that polishes the grain and makes it white and makes it therefore desirable in terms of aesthetics, but also desirable in terms of taste and consistency to a European market, right? So it's that processing technology 
the pounding, the fanning, etc., where all of that, all of that, that mortar, pestle, fan technology is is West African, um, and then the threshing mills that are built um, in South Carolina are based. The steam powered threshing mills, for example, are based on that technology, as well as the hydraulic irrigation system is based on an improvement and mechanization and modernization of hollowed out plug trunks that were used in West Africa and that were used in the early days um, in in South Carolina. Yeah. So so once again, um, just this uh, this knowledge in many different facets um, kind of then, of course, not of course, but um, created the the worth of this rice in general. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And and without that knowledge, there would be, you know, what would the rice be? Um, I was also kind of curious about um, when you were talking about how a lot of um, the white plantation owners and things like that and and, uh, the foreseers or whatnot, but um, how they would go back up north or whatever um, during that those summer months um, because of disease um, was that were um, f- folks who were still in the south working the plantations were they as susceptible to this disease or yes so you know one of the aha moments that I had when I was working on my first book. I was up to my neck in European travelers accounts and, you know, thinking about questions that other historians had asked about when did, when did Africa people in, in West Africa start growing rice in mangroves? And, you know, unfortunately historians often assume that, and unfortunately this is how we were trained back in the day, that if it wasn't written down, it didn't happen. So if there weren't written sources describing it, or when we have like this written source, this is not a good source, but here, these are archival sources. When we have the archival source or the whatever, traveler's account, that day is when it began, right? Whatever that date is. And of course that's crazy. Right. That's just crazy talk and crazy thinking and shame on us. We should know better by now. But, you know, going through these travelers accounts where I think it was the first one was 1793, where you get I think it was 93, where you get this description of mangrove rice farming. Woohoo! Right. But that doesn't mean that the day that European guy showed up, that that's the day that he taught the people who were there, or that that's the day that they started planting rice and mangroves. Well, what I, what I, I did a, a systematic analysis of the travelers accounts. And what I found, surprise, surprise, is that the white people weren't there when the Africans were growing rice. Why not? Because you grow rice. Okay. If you're growing rice in water, you've got a lot of standing water, which is going to breed mosquitoes, who are, which are going to breed malaria, 
which are going to make this microenvironment deadly for white folks. So they're not hanging around waiting for people to grow rice. Hello, they're just not there. So this one guy, this one slave trader, I can't remember the whole story. He gets marooned, basically. I think his ship broke down, some crazy mess. And he's stuck there. He's stuck in July, whatever month it was, when the peasant, West African peasants were growing rice. That's the only way he was there with his little pencil to draw this diagram and write this amazing description that so many historians had hung their hats on. Okay? And nobody else was there during those months before 17 whatever it was. Well, it's kind of the same thing in, it's a very similar thing in, West, in, in South Carolina. Because you're growing rice in standing water, the water breeds mosquitoes, mosquitoes breed malaria, making the disease environment deadly. So from early May to late November, the white people just aren't there. They're just not there. And this is a big thing about the Cumbie River Raid with Harriet Tubman and the U.S. colored troops. You know, if you saw the movie, the movie's wrong because there's no white people chasing them. There's no white people there except the commanders of the U.S., the Second South Carolina Volunteers, the planners, the overseers. I was reading some documents the other day where the Confederate Army said, well, we can't defend that. We're not, nobody's going to hold that area much longer. He's writing in March. He's like, nobody will hold it much longer. Why? Because in May, (laughs) this pattern of seasonal migration starts. And they go to the shore, to the Sea Islands. They go to Charleston and Savannah townhouse, maybe in Buford, or they go to the mountains in Flat Rock, North Carolina, North Carolina mountains, or some of them go up to uh, Newport, Rhode Island, right? They go north. They're not there. And the slave traders weren't there either. It's really fascinating how much um, farming practice and it's in its entanglements with environmental conditions um, dictates what we do and do not include in a capital H history. Um, And like you said, who bears witness and whose accounts are taken as history. Um, And, you know, what we can learn about environmental conditions and um, the land, how people interacted with the land, which I feel like a lot of history is the history of people. And I know you've looked a lot at not only people's impact on the coastal wetlands by rice farming, but then also those environments impact on enslaved people and kind of that continual, especially as we deal with climate change, like you said, how we're going to have to look at that more. Yeah, you know, and as much as I love environmental history, I don't call myself, I'm not an environmental historian. If anything, I'm a historian of slavery and I'm a historian of West Africa, but I'm always looking at that nexus of people in the environment. And as you said, not only, I think I've looked 
in the first part of my career at people, enslaved people and uh, peasant people's impact on the environment. But I'm also now increasingly looking at the environment's impact on the enslaved. And it's really because of this, this rupture, if you will, when you go from growing rice for subsistence purposes with family labor in a sustainable way to growing rice in a, for a commercial economy with enslaved labor in a completely unsustainable way. It's that rupture that just, I don't know, I can't, <laughs> that keeps me up at night. <laughs> and so that's, you know, how the different ways that people interact with the environment and are forced to interact with the environment on both sides of that rupture really fascinates me. Well, so do we want to um, kind of bring it forward in time and, and think about what this means for today? I mean, I think that's so, you know, one reason we wanted to do a history series on grains was to try to understand these divides. I mean, you know, we have a show on urban agriculture, but there's obviously this continuum because most people now live in cities, but I mean, that's, you know, their habits are dictating what's happening in the land, you know, in rural areas and what's happening there is to some degree dictating why people move to cities. And so there's this kind of like recursion and grains seem to be a one way to sort of track that. And I think the story of, um, in the U S context, obviously you can't escape the work of the labor of enslaved persons in the production of, of grains, especially in this, this context, we're talking about rice. Um, but looking at the future, you know, there, there's, there's so many other large sort of political economic questions. Um, and one that's already been brought up is, for example, is, is climate disruption. So I can only imagine what that's going to do to rice fields. So like just to, I mean, there's so many legacy questions we can ask and so many places we can take that to go back to like your, your musical work as well. Um, but to throw another one in the mix based on what Ali said, you know, what what is happening due to climate and how is that sort of changing the character of this long story of this entanglement between you know, um, wetlands and, and humans and, um, and the, this flow of, of what, what could be sort of otherwise like this boring commodity, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. I think that what's happening on both sides of the Atlantic is just rapidly rising sea levels. And, you know, on the one hand, in parts of West Africa, there's, how can I put this? There seems to be a much longer history of climate volatility. And people have sort of learned, and, and I think this is, Judith Carney would say, this is why you have these 50 plus ways of growing rice in 50 plus microenvironments, because you've got to eat. And so your people have learned over time to diversify right, the, where they're planting rice um, and to diversify planting rice in more than one microenvironment so that if you have a year or a couple of years where you get too much rain or not enough rain, you know, you might abandon some rice fields and a father might tell his son, you see that over there, that overgrown thing, that's your granddaddy's rice field. I have never cleared it but you and your sons might clear it. Don't forget it's ours, right? And so people had a way, people have ways of moving around in the landscape to um, mitigate 
to try to mitigate environmental volatility, climate volatility. But at the same time, when you have, if it's, if it's a couple of years, right, but if it's a couple of decades and the volatility, you know, gets more and more and more extreme in either direction, too much rain, not enough rain, rain starting too late, which if it starts too late, you might as well, mm. <laughs> it's really bad. Even if it's a lot, if it starts late, gosh, don't get me started. So, you know, that kind of volatility um, and how people manage it. So today in South Carolina, you know, you're having volatility. There's more water. The storms are producing more water. There's more flooding. And people in West Africa are still growing rice right? People still grow rice for subsistence to eat um, today in many parts of the Upper Guinea Coast. And so they're trying to figure out how are we going to continue to eat. In South Carolina, for a long period, on many particularly of the, and still on the tidal rice plantations, people don't grow rice. On some of the inland rice plantations. People are beginning to grow rice, whether it's for their own families or whether it's for boutique, you know, gourmet boutique sort of market. It's still relatively small scale, but people are are beginning to grow rice. What um, the rice fields today are primarily used for recreation. They're primarily used for duck hunting. And so people who particularly owners of tidal rice fields are managing the water to attract migratory birds, but managing that water as there's more and more and more and more and more water is becoming more expensive. And so at some point, decisions are going to have to be made about whether or not people continue to put some serious money into managing their tidal rice fields for recreation, right? And and does that does that pay off, right? Is it adding to your property value enough that you're actually increasing the assets of your beneficiaries? Or do you let the land go, right, in terms of managing the water and repairing the dikes, repairing the irrigation system, basically? Or do you sell it and give them a cash inheritance, right? Those are the kinds of things that people are, are, ha- are, are beginning to think about and will likely have to deal with more and more. Um, a lot of that land is owned by the state. What's the state going to do, right? This is ex- we're talking six figures, at least, to repair some of these rice fields, to repair a small portion of a rice field. So, you know, the preservation question is is huge. And it's 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 a big it's a big it's a big ticket item, right? Um down south in the Ace Basin, uh which is south of Charleston, you know, the issue of development is not an issue because of the Clean Water Act. Now, if you go north of Charleston to Georgetown, which is very close to Myrtle Beach, 
development is a much bigger issue. <laughs> and so questions of urbanization, you know, it doesn't, um, it would take a lot of money to fill in the rice fields and to, you know, drain the swamp and to put Humpty Dumpty back together again the way it was before, say, 1730 or 1750. That's some serious money. So that's another question, you know, is, is urbanization going to reach these very rural areas? Could we lose the rice fields to urbanization? We might lose them to climate change. We might lose them to urbanization. And so those are the kinds of decisions that people in, um, people and entities, families, you know, the state, organizations, foundations, colleges and universities that own this land are going to have to deal with. And in West Africa, it's expanding the, um, it's expanding the toolkit to figure out how to continue to diversify so that people can ensure subsistence. There's also the problem of migration because the heaviest labor is done by young men. And so older men control the labor of, I would say older teenage boys up until they marry. Traditionally, their labor has been controlled by male elders, their fathers, um, uncles, and other elder men in the village. Well, you know, people want their kids to go to school. And, okay, if the summer, if the vacation during the rainy season lines up with going back to work in dad's rice fields, great. But, you know, how are you going get, to get them back on the farm after they've seen Conakry and Boke and Dakar and, you know, all these places, Paris? <laughs> the elders don't have the same control. The boys have a lot more options. The girls, too. The girls are doing the sewing. You know, the women have their... Um, labor. You know, men are used to retiring in their 40s and directing those young boys, those young men to do this work so they can inherit land from their fathers, so they can start their families, so they can have a generation of boys to direct. But that population is getting smaller and smaller. As yeah, and as well as that that knowledge, that that far, who has that farming knowledge. Uh, of all of um, those different yeah. techniques and skills. And, um, you know, I think that that's a, a huge thing that could be lost. So just curious, what are you working on? And could you tell us kind of what's what's coming next? You know, uh, what should we look forward to from your scholarship and, you know, topics we may not have covered? I am working on Cumbie. Harriet Tubman, the Cumbie River Raid, and Black Freedom during the Civil War. Um, I am completely just, I don't even know. I'm just over, I'm just totally uh, enthralled, maybe that's a good word, with this amazing story. Um, 
I've been working for a couple of years now. I've lost count on the pension files of the men. So 756 people were freed from nine, okay, one was not a rice plantation, eight rice plantations um, in six hours. And the next day, about 200 men in this category joined the second South Carolina volunteers the next day. So for several years now, I've been reading their pension files and databasing their pension files and using those pension files to look for needles in the haystack and to tell the story of the raid from the perspective of the people who escaped in it. And to reconstruct the enslaved families and reconstruct their lives enslaved on these eight rice plantations. So it is, it blows my mind every day. Every day I I find something new. And then of course there's Harriet Tubman. You know, what can, what can I say about Harriet Tubman? And I say, to people, if you find Harriet Tubman standing in your rice fields, what are you supposed to do? Okay, what was I supposed to do other than figure out how to tell this amazing story? Um, and try to tell the story of not only sort of one of the best known and most notable people, formerly enslaved person, but also to tell the story of the nameless, faceless people whose stories we usually, stories and names we usually don't know and don't have access to. You know, and it's really the the painstaking research in the pension files um, that allows me to reconstruct these families and tell these stories. So that's what I'm working on right now. Then I'm headed to South Carolina to do some field work and a lot of writing. So fascinating. Thank you for sharing with us some of your upcoming um, work and just to hear a little more about how um, these really individual histories that go unnoticed can can build kind of a portrait of what agriculture actually means to us in a more tangible way in this country, more human I think story there. Thank you. It's just been uh, such a pleasure to um, uh, speak with you, um, Etta, and um, definitely want to thank you for speaking to us and telling us all of these incredible stories and your research. Um, And yeah, really, uh, I I definitely must say that I've I've learned a lot um, in in speaking with you. so, So thank you so much. The last thing I'll say is that Cumbie, Harriet Tubman, the Cumbie River Raid, and Black Freedom during the Civil War will be out on Juneteenth in 2023. So stay tuned. Thanks to our brilliant guests. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Werner. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio and at fields podcast. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.